0: But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefined finding comfort. Visit allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.
1: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
2: I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we hear from our reporter in Kyiv, about the latest air attack on Ukraine, which, according to authorities in the city, saw six so-called unstoppable hypersonic missiles and all other incoming munitions and drones shot down.
0: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous
3: and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the
1: battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
2: Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday the 16th of May, one year and 81 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by foreign reporter Meghna Nanu and, live from Kyiv, one of the Telegraph's photojournalists, Heathcliff O'Malley. I started by going through the latest news from Ukraine. I will start with the news of those air raids uh, last night. So Ukraine says it shot down six unstoppable, that's the word that Russia gave to these missiles, unstoppable hypersonic missiles overnight after one of the most intense air raids on the capital in recent history, the eighth air raid this month. So Yuri Yinyat, who's Ukraine's Air Force spokesman, said Kyiv was targeted with six Kinzhal missiles launched from MiG-31K aircraft. There were nine cruise missiles fired from ships in the Black Sea and three land-based S-400 cruise missiles also targeted the capital. So Mr. Inyat said 18 missiles of various types were intercepted and shot down. There were some drones as well. He said uh, it was exceptional in its density, the maximum number of attack missiles in the shortest period of time. Oh, sorry, that was Sergei Popko, the head of Kiev's uh, military administration. That was on Telegram. But uh, Defence Minister Alexei Reznikov, he's been speaking this morning on Twitter. He said another unbelievable success for the Ukrainian air forces, last night our sky defenders shot down six Russian hypersonic Kinzhal missiles and 12 other missiles. And later on this morning, Ukrainian MOD said that all targets were shot down. So what we think happened, what we think was launched, we think there were six Kinzhal, so the hypersonic missiles, like I say, Russia said they were un- un- they were unstoppable, um, nine caliber cruise missiles, six Shahid-136 drones. These are the Iranian-supplied um well, kamikaze drones, but you know, people don't like the term kamikaze, but one-way attack drones, sounds a bit clunky, and three S-400 ballistic missiles, as well as some other, other reconnaissance drones, the Orlan 10 being amongst them. Now, Ukrainian officials reported that debris fell across the city, as you'd expect from these things being hit in the sky. Three people so far reported injured, no deaths reported yet. Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko said falling debris had hit several cars, set the lot on fire, Damaged a building in the west of the capital, and at the same time, air defence systems also hit drones, uh, which I think probably come from the total number. But a drone drone attack south of Boryspil. So this is uh, basically a suburb, or it's a separate town, but it's it's five k's southeast of Kiev itself. Now Russia claims that it destroyed a Ukrainian Patriot air defense system using one of the Kinzhal missiles and on social media you'll see it on our website and it'll be elsewhere as well there are certainly images of an explosion at ground level but it's a photograph Heathcliff will be able to help us out here but so you know I can't tell if it's the if it's the launch of a missile the sort of bloom that brief bloom you get from the the missile blasting off or if it's something something landing there and destroying everything, so that's not clear. But it is at odds with the Ukrainian MOD statement saying that everything was shot down. They're unlikely to have said that if there's news coming out later of oh no, we've we've had actually had one of our air defence batteries destroyed. But also, you should bear in mind that each battery, and I think Ukraine have three at the moment. They've been promised more, but I think they've got three in the country at the moment. But each battery, which consists of a radar. control station and the actual launch tubes they're all separated they're spread out just so that they can withstand an attack you don't want everything to be in one site so that it can be destroyed so so they will be spread out so even if this is a blast on the patriot we don't know if it's the launch site the radar or the um or the control station but i have to say i kind of doubt Russia's version there because well because I doubt everything they say basically but that's the news as we've got it. Heathcliff, you're joining us live from Kiev. Be very interested to hear <laughs> your thoughts. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you're you. You're with, with Roland last week down in the donbass region. You're back now in Kiev for another for for a little time. We won't talk about dates when you're coming out and all the rest of it. But be fascinated to hear your thoughts last night. What did you hear? And what's the mood in the city this morning?
3: Last night, I mean, we all have these apps here on our phones which um tell us when there's an air raid my phone has the habit of switching the volume off on its own and so instead I got woken up by the explosions and I've never heard anything like it really In you know I mean with artillery it's different but it was a very noisy night and the hotel shook I heard over a dozen explosions and but you couldn't see when I looked out of the window, first of all, to see what was going on, you know, I could see what looked like flares falling, but I, I think those might have been the debris from the the rockets. But you have to be careful in terms of pictures here because people have got become unstuck before where they've taken a picture. You know, you, you don't want to give away the location of the air defence, so you do have to be careful at the same time. But what I saw last night didn't really make a picture. There was lots of smoke. Drifting around afterwards from from the um, from the launches of the air defence, but yeah, it was. I wouldn't. It was a little bit scary. I mean, it wasn't terrifying, but it was a little bit scary. I mean, it's a big city. You um. You'd have to be very unlucky. You know, sadly, last night it does sound like three people are injured. Um, I think debris fell on the fell on the zoo. I saw some pictures of some buses that were destroyed, and I and I saw this video of the alleged drone of the alleged unpatriot strike but it's very difficult to know i mean at the end of the video it looked like there could have been some sort of secondary explosions of stuff sort of flying fanning out in you know in different directions but it's it's very difficult to say and i just can't imagine the ukrainians would confirm or deny whether that did happen and even if it did the patriots have done an incredible job as of late in defending the city and sometimes things do get destroyed and lost so if it if it is true then you know that it happens but let's fingers crossed it didn't
2: yeah i mean we've made that point a number of times on the pod that 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 is what happens in war. And the more stuff that is gifted and sent to Ukraine, I mean, these things are going to turn up. We've seen images of British and American armoured vehicles that have been destroyed. I mean, we should, we need to get used to this. This is going to happen. We're going to see some of our amazing tanks and, and all the rest of it. This is, this, is, this is what happens when you fling heavy metal around the place. So we shouldn't worry about that. I mean, that, you know, they're expensive. We should worry about the people operating them. But, um, you know, this is this is going to happen. What's the mood in the city this morning? Um, Heathcliff, have people gone back to work? I mean, any any more air raid sirens since? No. Well,
3: there, there was a second air raid siren, which meant I had to stay up later than planned. I thought, alright, oh, so, you know, I can get back to bed now, about half past four, and then the alarm went off again almost immediately. So, um but then this morning, yeah, everyone's know, back to normal. The, the people of Kiev have they've they've learned to live with it you know I was talking to some people this morning and you know chatting about it and you know they were just talking about how you know how frightening frightening it is they just have to get on with life and you learn pretty quickly um, that you've, you've got to get some sleep and and deal with it and and carry on and you know yesterday i was out walking about and people are enjoying the sunshine it's been blazingly hot here and sunny today it's very overcast but um still incredibly warm and it's just incredible i mean when when you're out i i was having dinner with with people the, the other night and and just to think 14 months ago it looked like kiev was going to be taken possibly by the advancing russian forces and you look now and and when you look at the situation In the capital. And it's just so clear that Russia has failed. I mean, it's still a long way to go. They can't be underestimated. They're not stupid. But I think as far as their special operation is concerned, it has failed. It's just a matter of when now they decide to accept that fact.
2: Thanks, Heathcliff. Now, now, whilst you're on, we chatted to you briefly last week, but you know, we don't often get to speak to to the to your your band of brothers, the photographers, and I'd be really interested to get your perspective on on this and the reporting of these of wars such as this. I mean, do you feel safer where you are now in Kyiv, or when you were in the donbass i'm just thinking that for my when when i was in the military i much preferred being when i was in in charge of my destiny to a certain degree as opposed to being elsewhere and relying on others it just what, what's your perspective you've been out in the donbass for for, a little, for quite a while and then you come back to Kiev, try to get a night's sleep and um 18 missiles turn up
3: yeah it's 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 really quite strange because before the donbass we were down in Kherson, which was liberated in in November and I was there for the liberation and the mood was very jubilant at the beginning and now it's an incredibly dangerous place and in fact I would say down in Kurson is probably the most dangerous place I've been when Roland and I were in the Donbass and up on the, the front well I, you know it's the front but it's where close to where the artillery are positioned because we were of an air defense team that basically protect the artillery from um, threats from the air like drones and Mix and stuff and um, even though it was incredibly noisy and there was all sorts of artillery going off in both directions I would say that being in a city like Kurson is actually more dangerous because what I've learned the hard way is from the trips that we've been having is that there is just no warning with artillery you've literally got a half second whistle and, and a boom and you, you don't even have the time to take cover so you can imagine being a a Ukrainian civilian who needs to go to the shops or go to, maybe take some supplies around to their grandmother. There's, you know, there's a lot of elderly people here who can't look after themselves and they need people to, to help them. I mean, that, those are the people that get caught in the crossfire because the, the Russians seem to spend a lot more time, a lot of time, trying to make the civilians' lives as miserable as possible. And yeah, so I'd say, in fact, the most dangerous place I've I've felt was being in Kherson more than anywhere but it is bizarre to come back to Kiev and one minute you're promenading and enjoying the sunshine and then that night you're being rocketed with a hell of a lot of ordnance. yeah it was you know quite difficult to get your head around really but you, you just humans are adaptable and that's what the Ukrainians have done it's incredible
2: yeah and I, I hear what you're saying about people are, are nervous and frightened I mean these are all appropriate human reactions they'd be I'd be more worried if they weren't to be perfectly honest the same goes for for you guys and and us when when we're out there I mean these are these are the these are what you need this is part of the, the the human defense mechanism I mean when you are operating there you you have your face pressed up against the lens or sorry the other bit what's the other bit the viewfinder it's all very technical. Yes, I don't really understand yes. these things, but I mean, do, do you ever feel detached from it? And 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 does that does that make it easier to look at these things, or do you feel as if you haven't got that sort of situational awareness because you're not looking around? You're literally go you know, looking through the through all the all the gizmos and all those those funny little bits you keep twiddling.
3: I th- I think forgive the pun, but in a way it, it helps you focus. You know, because when when you're busy doing something, it's it's, it's like I, I remember years ago photographing at the end of the Vendee Globe boat race, and I was terribly seasick beforehand. But as soon as I knew what I was doing and taking pictures, I, I lost it. And, and I think it's the same when you're w- working somewhere like here. When, when, when you're f- when you're shooting, when you're working with the camera, you, you, you're able to focus like you would be if you are reporting, and you don't start thinking about other stuff. And I think that helps. I, I don't think it detaches you in the same way. But and for instance, I was photographing some funerals and... I think it was actually tougher when I was editing the pictures afterwards because it's brought it back the anguish and the, the grief and everything but um I, th- I think yeah that the, using the camera just enabled it it does focus the mind and but I, I've never felt at risk when I've been taking pictures I don't feel like I lose that sort of proof it's not like using night vision goggles when you when you lose complete spatial awareness and stuff like that it's yeah, you you because you, you're only looking through of one eye you've always got like, i think it's my I can't remember, is it my left eye or my right eye? Right? I think it depends on the mood I'm in. But you've I'm always looking, got one eye so free to have a look around you.
2: Yeah, I'm just fine. I'll come back to you at the end. I'll be for, for your any, any final observations that anything that happens over the next half hour or so. But I mean, to those that say, "Well, why do we still need photojournalists?" There's 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 helmet cam on all the soldiers. We can see what's going on on the front line. We've got CCTV all over the um, all over the cities, so we can we can kind of see what's going on. What is the power of the image? Why do you still do it?
3: I, I I just think photography in general is 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 incredibly important, and it's it's a it's a proven piece of record of of an event, and often images stills images will linger in the mind far longer than words, and sometimes they become iconic for either the right or wrong reasons. I don't even know if that's the right word, but everybody has photographs that stick in their mind, and. Um, I, you know, all, all of these extra pictures we see now taking on people's mobile phones and GoPros are all valuable as well. They sort of help to build that picture up. It's almost like a jigsaw puzzle. But you need independent, objective journalists on the ground writing and taking pictures to to record what's going on. And I do think they have a tremendous impact. And often there there are times when I shoot a picture that somebody has to write words around. And, you know, and, and other times I have to illustrate somebody's words, but pictures do still have a lot of power. And I think in the in the digital age, you know, people are looking at screens more and more and pictures are still as important as they ever were, really.
2: Lovely. Thanks, mate. I'll pop back to you at the end. But for now, if I may, let's turn to Maina. Mayna, you've been looking at some of the 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 international scene, some of the stories on the diplomatic front. What have you been looking at?
0: Yeah, so today we've had the news that Olena Zelenska, um, who's obviously Ukraine's first lady, met the South Korean president in Seoul today. And she said that she was seeking more radical backing for Ukraine in its fight against Russia. Now, this is quite interesting because South Korea, as we know, is the world's ninth largest arms exporter, and it's sold tanks and howitzers to Poland. But it does have a long standing policy of not providing weapons to active conflict zones. Um, but she was quite favourable in her remarks to a news agency when she was asked if Ukraine planned to invite the South Korean president to Kyiv. And she said that Ukraine was always waiting for its friends. So that's one to watch out for.
2: Cool. Yeah, I mean, South Korea, they've just sold 900-odd tanks to poland i mean a big old big old delivery it really shows the well the defense industrial base in south korea and also the heft this the security heft of of poland there is a i mean it's a subject for another day probably but i do feel the the center of gravity of kind of hard power in europe if you take away the united states for a start but but the hard power in, in nato shifting shifting east uh, towards the towards Poland and um, Baltic, Nordic states. Anyway, that's me musing. We will we'll chat again. Um, what else, Megan? Are you looking elsewhere? Were you we a couple of other stories?
0: Yeah, so while well, speaking about Poland, China's special Ukraine envoy is going to visit Poland. It's going to visit Warsaw on Friday and that's following a two-day trip to Kiev. So I think they're currently in Ukraine. But just generally, that's quite interesting because China has said that the aim of this tour which is seeing it visit Ukraine, Poland. And are they also visiting some, somewhere else in Europe, I think? And they said the aim of the tour is to communicate with all parties on the political settlement of the Ukrainian crisis. So that's, that's just quite interesting, because obviously Zelensky previously had a phone call with Xi Jinping towards the end of April. So it's just an interesting one to watch out for.
2: Yeah, it has somewhat gone quiet on, China, on the China front just lately, and I I wonder if they are keeping their diplomatic powder dry, just seeing what's going to happen with the the much anticipated spring offensive and if it's going to do anything and if it brings about the end of the war. But they have they've tried to set themselves up as the as the broker. But uh, yes, yeah, so the last last few weeks, not an awful lot has been going on there. Like I say, I think they're probably waiting waiting to see. Is that it? Made it anything else from you, or um, or should I move move on?
0: There's just one final update from South Africa. So Cyril Ramaphosa, who's the South African president, he said that a group of six African leaders are planning to travel to Russia and Ukraine as soon as possible to help find a resolution to the devastating conflict between the two countries. And he said that he's spoken to both Putin and Zelensky and they've agreed to receive a group of leaders to discuss their potential peace plan. But he does say, which is quite important, that whether that will succeed or not is going to d- depend on the discussion that will be held. So, yeah, that's that's just following on from, I guess, what we've heard previously about Ramaphosa.
2: Yeah, so South Africa, historically close to Russia and seemingly not stepping away from that position. There have been recent joint military drills with Russia and, um, and China. And there's these suggestions that uh, arms and, and ammunition... Are being sent via allegedly sent via South Africa to Russia. It would be interesting to to see what the um, see what this trip in, involves. And of course, Putin has been sanctioned by the International Criminal Court. If he goes to the, the this uh, to the meeting in South Africa, then then they should by rights arrest him. There's now talk that actually. He Putin will attend by video link to get around that. But no, South Africa, an interesting one. We do we do um, touch base there every now and again. We've got to keep our eye on that and the, the impact, the diplomatic clout that, that Russia has around the rest of the world, particularly thinking about the UN General Assembly, where every nation gets one vote. That is, there's very different experiences of this war and what it means elsewhere around the world in, the, in much of what's called the Global South or Latin America, South America, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, we do need to keep tabs on Russian diplomatic activity as far as South Africa is concerned. Um, yesterday, it was a busy day, busy day yesterday, so I didn't have time to bring everyone up to date on the latest announcement about arms gifting from Germany. So the new German military aid package for Ukraine, this is the biggest one yet. This was announced late last week when President Zelensky was on his whirlwind European tour and stopped off in Germany. So the biggest one yet from Germany, 2.7 billion euro. And on Saturday, German Defence Minister Boris Pistorius said that Berlin wanted to show, quote, that Germany is serious in its support for Ukraine. Germany will provide all the help it can as long as it takes. I mean, fairly, again, fairly punchy comments there from Mr. Pistorius. He's traditionally been a bit more um, hard over with his comments than, um, than Gerhard Schroeder. Uh, Then, oh god hang on i'm having a right old brain moment anyway you know the bloke who runs germany but the package from germany is going to be four more rst so these are air defense systems they are so rst infrared imaging system dash tail thrust vector controlled i.e it's an infrared imager that can see the target and it has tail thrust so the so the thrust out the back of the missile can be angled to give the thing better agility and the SLM bit stands for Surface Launched Medium Range. So these are mobile vehicle-mounted air defence systems. They are very good. So four more of those for Ukraine. I don't why I say Gerhard Schroeder for God's sake. Anyway, if we take one system to mean one battery, what do we think we're looking at here? So a bit like the Patriots, one RST SLM battery consists of three truck-mounted launchers, each of those launchers having eight missiles. 40k, 25 mile range for each of those missiles, and then a separate command vehicle that can be positioned up to 20k's away. So the command vehicle will integrate multiple radar sources, and it can it can track and launch against. Well, it can launch all 24 missiles simultaneously. So the RSC is a is a very good very good air defense um, system that's being gifted. Germany is also sending 20 Marder infantry fighting vehicles, old but good. Nothing wrong with being old but good. Another 30 Leopard 1 1A5 variants here. 18 155 howitzers, more Gepard self-propelled anti-aircraft guns. These fire. These are um, basically a Leopard hull with two 25 mm cannons on the side that just have a phenomenal rate of fire and just chuck huge, big, big old shells in the sky and, and, and knock the uh, not the missiles or the drones out that way. They've had a real reprieve actually, Gepard. They were. I mean, they're very old, the old bit of kit, but it, but funny old thing, it it works, and they've they've been brought back, basically by um, through the gifting program for Ukraine. Elsewhere, Germany also another hundred armored vehicles, another hundred support vehicles, loads of shells, ammunition, and two hundred surveillance drones. So after an initial slow start providing military aid to Kiev, Germany is now one of the biggest supplier of arms to Ukraine, and crucially had the power of veto over the leopard leopard tanks so they they've said yes and now other countries that have leopard can um can send them in to ukraine i'm still trying to think about the, the german bloke who's a guy in charge bald fella that one anyway right heathcliff any last thoughts before we uh before we say goodbye well i I've,
3: I've just been i've been asked to write a newsletter and i and I, i've just say again that it's I'm just so impressed by the Ukrainians. I mean, I I'm not just looking for it all with rose tinted glasses. There have been times when I've been incredibly well not incredibly, but I have I am at times pessimistic and think this is a lot tougher than we realise, but just the just how resilient the people are and how they've managed to deal with this day in, day out. And um yeah, I just I can never. I'm just amazed at how impressive they are, and um, what a wonderful country it's really. That's like, not Before. really much else to add. Um, and then the next few days, I'll be heading off just to look at some charity work that's going on. But yeah, it's yeah, you know, it's always it's just such a privilege to be working here. Really, I really do feel that way about covering this story.
2: Well, thanks, Heathcliff, and uh, thanks, Main and thanks, Anne. Olaf Schultz, of course, it's, of course it's Olaf Schultz. What was I thinking? Last week, I sat down with James Cowan, a former Major General in the British Army and now Chief Exec of the Halo Trust, the demining charity. I asked him about Halo Trust lay down across the world, working in difficult circumstances and having to work with some pretty odd bedfellows like the Taliban and how the charity has had to adjust its work in the face of the full-scale invasion in Ukraine. James Cowan, thank you for joining Ukraine The Latest. You helped plan the Kosovo operation in 1999 and planned the Olympic security model in 2012. You've been HALO's CEO since 2015. I wonder if you could just briefly set out for us the Work HALO Trust does, locations, and quite where the world is in the use of and the legal context around landmines.
1: Well, thank you, John. As you say, I've been running the Halo Trust since 2015, and the world has changed a lot since that time. Halo came into being in 1988 in Afghanistan, and it was brought into being to help clear landmines. And it's the largest what's called mine action NGO in the world. But it has grown and changed a lot since uh, I started in 2015. From a time when we were in 16 countries with about 6,500 staff, we're now in 30 countries with nearly 13,000 staff. And our biggest country remains Afghanistan, actually. We still have 2,500 people there. Uh, We've managed to survive the arrival of the Taliban and, and we continue to execute our humanitarian duties there. But we are now in a great a large range of other countries that are affected by conflict. So our world divides between those in conflict and those post-conflict. The post-conflict countries are relatively straightforward. Places like Angola, Sri Lanka, Zimbabwe, Cambodia, Laos. These are countries where landmines were used on a, a truly gigantic scale. And our work there is to essentially decontaminate the land and restore it to safe farming and other livelihoods. And we can get on with that. And the the purity of our work is that there will be a time when those countries are completely landmine free. We've already got Mozambique to the point where there are no more landmines. But in these new countries, which are in conflict, the Halo Trust has changed. And we are evolving from being what you might call a mine action NGO into what I would call a conflict action NGO because we not, now not only clear landmines, we clear IEDs. We put a lot of work into our IED clearance techniques, and we are doing that all across Afghanistan at the moment in places that were previously, ironically, unreachable. We can now get into all of Helmand, all, all, all the areas around Kandahar, and we have a very considerable amount of growth in those areas. But we're in other countries like Libya, we're in Syria. We're in Iraq, we're in Yemen, we're in Somalia. And these countries are very difficult to operate in, but nevertheless, we need to be there. And our work is not just about landmine and IED clearance. It's about the removal of all sorts of explosive contamination, the control of small arms, armed violence reduction, ammunition stockpile management. And the reason why people like our work is because it has Uh, not only a humanitarian benefit but it has a stabilization benefit for instance the british foreign office we work to the mines and migration department so there's a, a connection there between addressing conflict and instability and the current migration crisis so different countries want different things from us the united states is very keen on stabilization norway is very keen on humanitarian support the netherlands is very keen on development support so different requirements, but they're all united in a common purpose. So that's what we're doing, which brings us to Ukraine. And maybe I should pause there before we go on to,
2: I know the subject you want to talk about this morning,
1: namely Ukraine.
2: Just before we move to Ukraine, could you say a little bit about working in challenging circumstances and places where you work, if not alongside, I'm thinking Afghanistan, alongside the Taliban, but with the powers that be in the areas you're working in how is halo able to function and not be seen as a tool of the west for example
1: the very important aspect of landmine clearance is it is a universally recognized good and people want to see these devices gone and the taliban is no exception to that people have criticisms to make of the taliban but they have achieved stability and it is now possible to transit all parts of afghanistan in safety And they are very committed to the removal of the residual landmine and IED threat and indeed the remaining NATO munition stockpiles. So they've given us permission to work really across the country. And I found myself in the strange position of being the former commander of Task Force Helmand. Yet I went out last June and had high-level meetings with the Taliban. I met one minister who'd been in Guantanamo Bay another minister who was the brother of Mullah Omar, and I met the commander, effectively, of the Taliban military, the governor of Kandahar. And, you know, these are men who might have had good reason not to like someone like me. But I think what I liked was that they were pragmatists and that they appeared to want to do right by their country. And they could see that the HALO was there not as a, a political campaigning charity, but as a charity that gets on and does its work without a political bias. So I think that is the reason why we can do this work. And ultimately, we're not there for us. We're not there for the Taliban. We're there for the people of Afghanistan, the women and children and innocent civilians who are killed by these devices.
2: I'll move to Ukraine now. I think you've been there for seven years. Can you tell us about your work there, your laydown across the country, and how Halo is able to continue work and the areas you are in since the launch of the full-scale invasion last year?
1: Yeah, so the Halo Trust set up its program in Ukraine in 2015. In other words, a few months after the end of the 2014 conflict and we were working down in the Donbass. We had about 430 staff from the south in Maripol up to uh, the north, just south of Kharkiv. Our center of operations was around Kramatorsk, i.e., just to the west of the present fighting around Bakhmut. And we were essentially clearing up the landmines and other unexploded ordnance of the 2014 war. When it became apparent that the invasion was looming... My view was that the Russians would likely succeed and that we should put the program on ice and prepare effectively for Ukraine to be overrun. Thankfully, I was wrong, and quite quickly we were able to see that Ukraine was going to survive and we were able to reconstitute the program. We did have some members of our staff overrun in Mariupol and others were trapped behind Russian lines in more rural areas of the Donbass. But we were able to pull back and essentially have a rally point at Vinitsia. And of the original 430 staff, we were able to recover some 200. Some, of course, also of of our men of fighting age have been mobilized into the Ukrainian army. But from that low point of around 200, we then rebuilt the program around Kyiv this time. So not in the Donbass. And we've now through the excellent support we've had from international donors rebuilt the program to 700 staff and we have plans to grow to 1200 staff we are now operating not just around kiev but Chernihiv, sumi kharkiv and nikolayev and we are essentially envisioning an operation that will grow in accordance with the ukrainian capacity to liberate areas so the way to think about this is less about sort of berlin 1945 i.e waiting until the moment of the end of the war think of it less like that than perhaps italy 1943 in which a country is gradually liberated and as each new area falls into ukrainian hands so we will be able to follow up to clear it and there is a huge task ahead of which i can elaborate in a minute
2: Thank you. So so yes, let's talk about that. Could, has the technology changed? Or rather, I presume technology must change. You're probably seeing some very old legacy equipment. But as you say, IEDs is, as the nature of the expression, it's improvised. So how do you stay on top of advances and changes in technology? And where do you see that moving in, this, in, in Ukraine?
1: So I think, I mean, the most, perhaps the most startling aspect of this war is just how little innovation there is. This is a highly conventional war in which the wholesale use of traditional landmines is being made. The Russians are utilizing large, large stockpiles of conventional landmines and uh, both anti-tank and anti-personnel. The other aspect of this war is, of course, it isn't just about landmine clearance. There are different calculations, but current estimates suggest about 26,000 rounds of artillery ammunition being fired a day. It has been as high as 60,000 rounds, and we all know about current Russian ammunition shortages around Bakhmut and the complaints made by Prigozhin to that effect. But if you average it out, uh, the Russians are firing around 26,000 rounds a day. Ukraine's far lower numbers. The important point here is that with poor industrial standards, about 10% of the Russian ammunition is not detonating. So what we're seeing is the widespread use of dumb artillery ammunition falling into prime agricultural land and needing clearance. So the technology we're seeing is not especially sophisticated. It's just the widespread use of dumb landmines, whether anti-tank or anti-personnel, and dumb artillery ammunition. There is some very, very occasional use of Improvised devices, but these are not wholly homemade. These are essentially rigging up um, factory-produced munition types and creating booby traps with trip devices between trees or indoors in buildings But this is not a large aspect of this conflict. The thing to, to bear in mind is the sheer scale of entrenchment wiring and landmine laying currently being conducted by the Russians they are anticipating obviously the Ukrainian counteroffensive. with the exception of Bakhmut and various other small areas they've gone on to the defensive and they are entrenching and laying landmines on a, a gigantic scale a scale not seen in any previous HALO operation we work on the basis of one day's fighting equaling one month's clearance I'm not sure that rule of thumb really holds good in this circumstance but it does give you some sense of how long this is going to take to clear and what's actually vital here is the amount of land uh, prime agricultural land that is currently denied to Ukraine there is a a huge need to get that land back into economic productive use and so the technology we're employing is moving from hands and knees humanitarian demining by human deminers into the wholesale investment in mechanized capacity to ensure that we can clear prime agricultural land as quickly as possible.
2: And the Russian operation, as you say, which I presume must be the biggest mining operation in Europe since the Second World War, I don't think it's anything like the scale of the Balkans Wars, it must have been, must be eclipsed in Ukraine. Are they doing it professionally? Are they marking maps? Are they sharing that information with you? Do you, have, do you speak to Russians at all, Russian forces, the Wagner Group at all, any other, any other private military companies? Is there any interaction at all such so that you know where these things are being laid?
1: Well, let's, if you asked earlier, and I didn't really answer the question, but let me take the legal basis for this. So the legal basis for the use of landmines is set out within the Ottawa Landmine Ban Convention. And sadly, Russia is not a signatory to that treaty that landmine ban convention in any case only Bans anti-personnel mines not anti-tank mines So Russia isn't a signatory to it Ukraine is a signatory and it is abiding by The anti-personnel landmine ban, but it is allowed to have anti-tank mines under the terms of the geneva convention they are required both sides to map minefields to mark them visually and to share that information but we are not in receipt of such information from the russians and given the present nature of the conflict i don't expect to be so one of the vital roles the halo trust plays is survey Um, what we have to our advantage is this is really the first open source war ever fought and we're in a position to use social media data to identify community awareness of minefields and that has provided us with a, an extraordinary level of detail that we've never previously had but it has a flaw it requires the community still to be present and of course in many of the most contested areas of the donbass communities have fled and these lands have become very depopulated. So the community reporting of mines is not as good as it should be in in, and along the Donbass. However, it is excellent around Kyiv. The the second way of conducting the survey is through open source satellite data, and we are beginning to build a pretty clear picture of the extent of the Russian minefield defences. There are other resources available to us, The use of artillery, particularly once the land dries out, tends to cause an immediate fire, and the same satellite technology that allows, for instance, uh, U.S. park authorities to monitor summer fires uh, in, in, in areas of California and the like can be used immediately to identify fires caused by artillery ammunition. So we're using all this data to map out the level of contamination, and we believe that this is a scale of contamination that dwarfs anything we have seen in afghanistan or in cambodia or in angola it will be truly a generational task to complete the clearance of ukraine
2: so yes so not seen since second world war i presume globally i'm trying to think of another conflict
1: on this scale on iraq war so the big unresolved landmine problems are obviously the dmz between north and south korea and the Iran Iraq border um, still has you know massive numbers of landmines. The border between Thailand and Cambodia was mined extensively by the Vietnamese and by the Khmer Rouge, and that's still a huge landmine barrier. So there are there are big landmine barriers out there. Even you know the Rhodesian one on the border with Mozambique is still extant in, in Zimbabwe and is being cleared. But none of these come anything like the scale of
2: what we're seeing in Ukraine. And does Halo Trust ever feel itself under pressure from? Governments to help. I mean, you you say you are you're surveying through various means where these landmines are being laid. I'm sure the Ukrainian government and Western nations are also looking looking at that. But even if they've got information themselves, they would always look to to check that information. Do do you find yourself being asked for favours or information, and does that put you in a difficult political position?
1: So our humanitarian duty is to share and to be transparent. So if we're asked for data, which we believe has humanitarian value, we will share it with the United Nations. We've not been asked by the Ukrainians for that information. I think they're perfectly capable of identifying it for themselves. But we, under the terms of the Landmine Ban Treaty, work to the Ukrainian sovereign authority. They have a national authority. Every every country that is a signatory to the treaty has a, a national mine action authority. And we don't operate in isolation from their sovereign needs we work to to their clearance plan so we're perfectly content with that and that is exactly how it should be under international law
2: and um just moving towards the end now if i may uh, how do you keep going how do you and your staff keep going it must be exhausting work it's emotionally draining you have lost people it must be very easy to take a a jaundiced view of humanity how on earth do you keep the operation going
1: well don thank you for asking i mean because I've given you a very sort of dry, sort of retired general-like analysis of it, but this is a very human business, and we have hundreds of employees who are themselves victims of this war. Some of them have been have moved out of their houses back in 2014, and then lost their, house, their second house for the second time you know, in in, in February last year. And you know, they have grandparents who are stuck on the wrong side of the line of control. They have brothers or sons or fathers who are have been mobilized or killed or wounded. And every day they're going out to do this incredible work. And if they don't do it, no Ukrainian is going home. No Ukrainian is opening a shop or starting a factory again. And no Ukrainian farmer is plowing a field. So they know what's needed. This is a country incredibly determined to succeed. And we're very lucky to have these very brave men and women who come and do this work. By the way, people think of mine action as a very male world, but actually we're increasingly employing women because they are just very immaculate workers. They know how to do the drills well and they don't make mistakes. And moreover, of course, they're not subject to mobilisation into the army. So we're very proud of the number of women that we employ in the Halo Trust in Ukraine and worldwide.
2: And you had uh, an all-female team in Afghanistan, I understand, And what's happened to that team?
1: So we've never had an all-female team in Afghanistan. What we have always had is mixed teams that go out to do survey, and they they do it in accordance with Sharia law, working with uh, uh, either a husband, a father or a brother. And that was before the Taliban coming to power. What we're actually in negotiation with the Taliban is to allow us to employ more women, in afghanistan we are obviously going very carefully about this we want to be respectful of local customs but we are not a campaigning charity we're not there to poke people in the chest and we will do this with patience and at a pace that takes account of local sensibility but in other countries in angola for instance we started out with a program called 100 women in demining well it's it's a misnomer now we've now got 800 women in demining in angola so it's uh, you know this is this we're achieving huge success with our employment of women and they are very disproportionately the beneficiaries of this work because they can very often if they're single family heads of households be on the bread line as women on their own but with jobs from us we can give them not only a, a job as a d minor but then the land is cleared and they have a sustainable livelihood as a small-scale farmer long into the future
2: and finally are you sufficiently resourced? I mean, how do you raise your funds? How are you able to keep going as an organisation?
1: So the Halo Trust is is funded by a range of international donors, mostly Western countries. The United States is our largest donor, the United Kingdom, European countries, European Union. But we are also the beneficiaries of some very significant private donors. And of course, the Ukraine war has galvanised support for us, both from private foundations, from large corporates and from high net worths. Many of these people do this without any desire for glory. We have one anonymous donor in the United States who is paying for the clearance of two whole countries and he doesn't want any publicity. It's pretty amazing what people are willing to do because they recognise that you know, if a land cannot be cleared of mines, then it cannot be normal. And people are hurt, people are killed, people are wounded and people live in poverty. So that's the purpose of our work and people increasingly recognise that. We're not a a massively well-known charity. People have heard about us, but we are always on the look for new donors, new supporters who can recognise the value of what we do.
2: And I think you touched on it earlier on, but just to finish, if the fighting stopped tomorrow, how long would it take to clear Ukraine?
1: This is a very difficult question because you're asking me what's the score when we may not even have got to the half-time of the match. And... So, but if it did stop tomorrow and it's been going now for 14, 15 months, I have a rule of thumb, which is one day of fighting equals one month of clearance. We're into many decades to to get this job done. And the only way we can advance that is by raising more money uh, and by growing substantially the number of people and the amount of mechanical equipment we have to clear uh, Ukraine of this
2: contamination. James Cannon, thanks so much for talking to Ukraine The Latest.
1: Thank you, Dom. Thank
2: you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can always get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill.